Welcome to the Lake Point Church Weekend Messages Podcast. Thanks for joining us to hear the latest sermons happening at our church. We pray that God speaks to you in a timely way through this message. And if you're encouraged by this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and share it to help get the word out. You can find more digital content to feed your faith and our other podcasts by visiting lakepoint.church/digital. Now, let's tune into the message for today. Point family, if you got your Bibles, head over to Luke chapter 18. That's where we're gonna be today. Um, Luke chapter 18. And hey, while you're turning there, um, Lake Point family, we had something happen in our church last week that we need to celebrate. Um, the Bible says that there is great rejoicing in heaven when even one person turns to God. And uh, last week, um, we had over 60 people across all of our campuses give their lives to Christ. Can we say that's right? Let's celebrate that. Man, we never, ever, ever. If we ever stop celebrating that, then we need to close our doors, guys. Um, I praise Christ for that. That's uh, just amazing. And uh, man, if you're new with us, I just wanna welcome you. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of uh, the co-pastors here at our church, and um, I've been here about six weeks. So if you're new, then we can be new together. Um, I do just wanna extend a, a thank you from my family for how you guys are making us feel welcome. Um, everybody's been, been great just to come and say, hey, like when we see you around the city, that kind of thing. Um, what I've noticed is that when people see, uh, say, hey, um, outside of church, just around town, they always say the same two things. Number one, they say, I thought you'd be taller. <clears throat> and then, uh, but then number two, they say, man, you look a lot older on stage. To the point that at the YMCA this week, somebody said, are you Josh Howerton's son? And I'm like, come on, are you serious, you know? But man, I do just wanna thank everybody just for how you made us feel welcome. And uh, man, um, if you're new with us, you picked a perfect week. We are starting a new series um, this week. Title of the series is B-Y-O-G, okay? Little play, play on words here, B-Y-O-G. And uh, we all know what this is, so, so let's be, be adults here. We, we know what's going on. Uh, the title of the series, help me out. We're used to hearing B-Y-O-B, which stands for bring your own, right? We, we, that's right. So you all are too afraid to say it in church. That's what that stands for. And, uh, and so real quick, um, a little play on words. We're used to bring your own beer, B-Y-O-B. Now, really quick, can, can I tell a Baptist joke? I, that's my team. I grew up Baptist. Uh, can, can I tell a Baptist joke you guys are, without you getting offended? Okay, can I do this? Okay, why do you always bring two Baptists with you when you go fishing? <clears throat> bring one and he'll drink all your beer. Bring two and they won't drink any. <laughs> you see how that works? Okay. Some of you, that takes a second. There's a delayed response on that, all right? Well, what we're doing today is we're used to BYOB. What we're doing is BYOG, bring your own God. And, uh, and that's kind of the reason we're doing that is that's kind of what our culture is like. Our, our culture is kind of like, man, whatever you wanna worship, whatever you wanna make a priority in your life, that's totally up to you. It's kind of like a, everybody bring your own. It's an all skate. Now, when it comes to bring your own God, and I say that, um, a lot of you guys, you may hear that and you may go, no, wait a second, Josh. Uh, that's not me, man. Like, I, you know, I'm from Texas. I've never been, you know, tempted to worship or bow down to some other foreign god. Um, and, and let me help you explain the. Let me explain the confusion. When we think of the word idolatry or idol, a foreign god, another god, 
What we tend to get a mental image of is maybe somebody in Eastern Asia in a Hindu temple bowing down to a literal statue. In the Bible, idolatry is far bigger than simply bowing down to a physical statue. Okay, I'll give you a couple examples. So for instance, have you ever noticed that in the book of Colossians, Paul rebukes greed, and then he says this. He says, watch out for greed, which is idolatry. Now how in the world is greed idolatry? Okay, ask you a question. Um, I'll give you another one. Have you ever noticed at the end of the book of 1 John that the, uh, the, the, uh, the epistle writer John He's never mentioned idolatry in the entire book, and then the last sentence of the book is, little children, keep yourself from idols. Now, there's two options. Either he's introducing a totally new theme that he's never talked about before in the entire book, he does it for one sentence, and then he's done, or he's summarizing what everything in the book is talking about under the heading, keep yourself from idols. That's interesting. Um, I'll give you one last one. Have you ever noticed that, that in Romans chapter one, Paul says the sin that's underneath all the sin in the world, that gives birth to every other sin, is that we exchanged, uh, that we worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Okay, now that's really interesting. Now let me help you understand what idolatry is in the Bible that you may see in your heart. Idolatry is putting anything in our lives in the place of God. Idolatry is loving anything more than you love God. An idol in your life is anything in your life that becomes a God substitute. It's when you look to anything in your life to do for you what only God can do for you. So it's when you look to something besides God in your life to give you happiness, self-worth, security, approval. It's when you build your identity on anything other than God. Let me give you a definition of idolatry. If you're taking notes this morning, here's what idolatry means in the Bible. Idolatry is looking to something created for something that only the creator can give you. Now here's why that's a big deal. What the Bible says is that the biggest problem in your life is not the enemies that you have out there, the biggest problem you got in your life is your inner me. What's most likely to destroy you, according to the Bible, are not the problems that invade your life, it's the gods that infest your heart. And what we wanna do today is we wanna see, we wanna topple those idols, okay? Now, today we're looking at, uh, really, it's the granddaddy of all idols. It is the default setting of the human heart. This is the idolatry that every baby that has ever been born gets born into this world with this default setting. And it's the idolatry that we call pride. So it's the tendency to look to ourselves to do for us what only God can do for us. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, committed this sin. They looked to themselves to, do, to put themselves in the place of God. And because of that, everybody that's ever been born has been born with that default setting. Remember how Satan tempted them in the garden. You will be like God. Put yourself in the place of God. Now, uh, if you don't believe me that everyone everywhere is born with a default setting to pride, let me ask the experts in the room, the parents, okay? <clears throat> parents, did you have to teach your children to be selfish or did it come naturally to them? Okay, and a lot of times you get one that comes a little more naturally too. You know, so that's just how it works. We're born with that default setting to now. Here's what we're going to look at today: the default setting to be our own savior. 
That's the thing that we're gonna look at today, the temptation to be our own savior, all right? So if you got your Bibles, pick up with me in uh, Luke chapter 18. Let's read the passage. I love this passage so much. Here, here we go. It's a parable from Jesus. Jesus tells this story to some who were, watch this, who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. Now, I need to pause here. I got one problem as a preacher. My problem is, a lot of us, we hear the word Pharisee, and in our culture, we immediately think, ooh, Pharisee, that's the bad guy. That is not what they would have thought when they heard this word. In fact, the word Pharisee comes from the Hebrew word parisa that means set apart or separate. The Pharisees were the people who, when all of the other Israelites were going after uh, the, uh, the pagan practices of the nations around them, the Pharisees were the ones who said, man, not us. We want to be separate. We want to be cut apart. We want to be holy, okay? But they took it too far to the point that they started becoming confident of their own righteousness. This is interesting. If you had told a first century Jewish person that they were being Pharisaical, they would have said, oh, thank you so much. That's what they would have said. So good guys, now watch this. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, I don't have time to go into this. Here's all you need to know. In a Jewish person's mind in first century Rome, there was no one worse than a tax collector. Uh, literally the most morally reprehensible person you could find in the entire culture. So for instance, in our culture, the equivalent of a tax collector in our, our culture, it would be people like uh, people who sell drugs to kids, abortion doctors who work overtime because they just love their jobs, human traffickers, Duke basketball fans, all of the absolute <laughs> worst people. So that's who they would have thought of. When they, when, you gotta have fun doing this. When they heard the word tax collector. Now watch what Jesus says about these two people, okay? The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Now watch this, all his eyes. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And surely what you need to know is anybody that can pray that from a genuine heart will go home justified. Now watch this. I tell you, Jesus says, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Now watch this, Jesus is preaching my sermon, I'ma let him do it. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Okay. Now, can I start just by making a really interesting observation? Uh, have you ever noticed that Jesus is always telling stories where the morally conservative, Bible-believing people end up on the outside of God's good graces, and the sinful, reprehensible adulterers end up on the inside of God's good graces. Have you ever noticed this? So for instance, in the parable of the prodigal sons, plural, have you ever noticed that at the end of that parable, the son who squandered all of his dad's money on drinking and prostitutes ends up in the living room and the moral obedient son ends, uh, ends the parable throwing a tantrum on the lawn outside of the father's house. Uh, I'll give you another one. Uh, when Jesus was facing the Pharisees, again, morally conservative, Bible-believing people, you remember what he said to them? He said, the prostitutes and the tax collectors enter the kingdom of God before you. Um, maybe my favorite story in all of Jesus' ministry, do you remember the story of the woman caught in adultery? And there's all the Pharisees there. Again, the moral, religious, scrupulous, obedient people. And they're getting ready to stone the woman. Who ends up running away from Jesus and who ends up receiving his embrace? <laughs> 
It's the morally conservative, Bible-believing people who walk away, and then it's the woman who not 10 minutes earlier was committing adultery that ends the story in the warm embrace of Jesus. Constantly throughout Jesus' ministry, he is a lion towards the self-righteous, and he is a gentle lamb towards the broken sinner. Now, why? We see the same thing in this parable here. Why? Okay. Uh, Let me even take this a step further. Have you noticed that same trend continues throughout the entire New Testament? Okay, um, a lot of people think of the Bible as a a very safe, uh, sort of, you know, G-rated book. Have you ever noticed the New Testament, it actually has a lot of very harsh language, okay? Now, I just wanna point a trend out to you about the harsh language of the New Testament. Now, track with me. Now, by the way, some of these are kinda rough. Here's, all I'm doing is reading the Bible, okay? That's all I'm doing here, okay? So, So check this out with me. So I'll give you one. This is in Galatians chapter one. Now, remember, When Paul writes this, he's writing to religious people who were telling Gentiles that were trusting Christ that they had to obey the circumcision law in order to be sure they were saved, right? Remember this? Do you remember what Paul says to these people? He says, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be accursed. Other translations say this, let them go to hell. I'm just reading the Bible, okay? Um, I'll give you another one. Uh, later in, uh, in, in the book of Matthew, Jesus says to, again, morally scrupulous Pharisees, he says, you brood of vipers. Jesus is name calling. <laughs> you brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? Now, why does Jesus call them a brood of vipers? Do you know what he's saying? He was saying the devil in Genesis 2 appeared as a serpent and you're just like your dad. Now, he says that to the Pharisees. Now, I'll give you another one from Galatians. Remember, in Galatians, they're talking to people who said, that people had to obey the circumcision law in order to be sure that they were saved. Now watch what he says right here. Again, I'm just reading the Bible, guys. This is Galatians chapter five. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Now, listen, that's a Bible verse. Do you know what, are you picking up what he's saying here? He's saying, they're telling you to snip the tip. I wish they'd uh, just cut the whole thing off. I don't wanna have to deal with any of their kids. That's what I wish they'd do. Now, I'll give you one last one, okay? And this is, this is my favorite one. Again, I'm just reading the Bible. That's all I'm doing. This is in Philippians chapter three. Now, remember, Paul used to be one of these pharisaical, self-righteous, moral religious people, okay? Moralistic religious people, I should say. And in Philippians three, Paul starts listing all of his good religious works that he thought justified him before God, made him right with God. And then watch what he says about it in Philippians three. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, his good works that he credited to his name, and I count them as, now your English translation of the Bible says rubbish. Rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Your English translation says rubbish. That is not what the original Greek says. Um, In fact, the Greek word here is the word skubala. It's used only one time in the entire Bible. Now, I'm I'm gonna put up on the screen a definition of the word scubala. Now, before I do that, here's what you need to know. I literally just copied and pasted this from a Bible dictionary in my office, okay? Now, here's the Greek definition of the word scubala. Scubala, noun, dung, human excrement, especially in the plural, as in Philippians 3.8, or with a stronger emotive connotation and the concomitant shock value. And then in my Bible dictionary, there is a word that I will not put in a Christian worship service. 
Are, are you guys picking up what I'm putting down? Okay, uh, if you're not, let me help you. If you were driving around ancient Rome, the bumper stickers on the backs of the chariots would read, Scubala happens. Okay, are you <laughs> getting what I'm saying? Okay, are we all on the same page? Okay, you got this? Now, why, why, why is all, why is all of the harsh language in the New Testament towards the self-righteous religious people and never towards the openly sinful people? Do you know why? Because Jesus is teaching what's most likely to keep you from God is not your sin, it's your self-righteousness. That is the thing. He's teaching that it's possible to be passionately committed to Judeo-Christian values and totally miss salvation in Christ. That is what we today are going to call moralism. That's what we're gonna call moralism. Let me give you a definition. Moralism is the attempt to be your own savior by putting your confidence in your own religious or moral performance. And here's what's so dangerous about moralism, okay? Here's why it's dangerous. Because a moralist and a Christian can look virtually the same on the outside and yet one of them is totally lost according to Jesus, in fact, they look so similar. One of my favorite Bible scholars, um, a man named Tim Keller, puts it this way. He says, a lot of people who think that they're Christians are actually moralists, and a lot of people who think that they've rejected Christianity did not reject Christianity at all. They rejected moralism. Now, that's a big deal. Now, here's what I wanna do. This parable that Jesus tells, it's not just for the purpose of warning us that moralism exists. He gives us his parable to show us what moralism is like and to show us how it's different from saving faith in Jesus. That's very important, okay? So here's what I'm gonna do. I've noticed online that you all like to take those tests on social media, you know, all those tests that tell you what, what Harry Potter house you are, what Enneagram number you are, whether you're an introvert or extrovert. I actually saw one this week, a test you could take that would tell you what piece of Ikea furniture you are, okay? By the way, I'm a Felista table lamp, if you wanted to know, that's what I am, okay? Now, here's what I wanna do. I want to give you a test to help you self-identify Man, am I a Christian or is there some moralism at root in my heart where I'm trying to be my own savior? Okay, so I'm gonna run through these. Distinctions between moralists and Christians and what I need you to do is self-identify, man, which one of those am I, okay? So I gotta run through these pretty quick. Now track with me. Number one, watch this. Did you notice that in the parable, the Pharisee is always talking about himself. He has four eyes in his prayer. God, I thank you. I'm not like other people. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get, okay? Now watch this. A moralist, uh, the, the motto of the moralist is I obey, therefore I am accepted, okay? God's love for me is dependent upon my obedience to him. A Christian has this motto, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. You see, a moralist obeys out of fear, a Christian obeys out of love. A moralist is obeying for the acceptance of God. A Christian is obeying from the acceptance of God. Now watch this. This plays itself out in how these two people, what they focus on. Okay, so I'll give you another one. You remember the four eyes of the Pharisee. So for a moralist, my focus is on my moral performance and how I'm doing, okay? But for a Christian, watch this. My focus is on Jesus' moral performance and what he did. Those are radically different things. The symbol of a Christian is a cross. The symbol of a moralist is a ladder. Climb your way up. The God of the moralist points his finger 
at you and says, get to work. Whereas the God of the Christian climbed up on a cross, stretched out his arms and says, it is finished. I have accomplished everything necessary for your salvation. All the work is done, I did it for you. And that's why we love him so much and that's why we're so excited about Jesus because he did all the work for us. So there's a difference in what we focus on. Now what happens in a moralist life, here's what happens in a moralist life. They, they just become obsessively focused on me and how I'm doing. And a lot of times it creates uh, this situation. Have you guys ever known uh, these Christian subcultures where whoever has the biggest guilt complex is seen as the best Christian? You ever seen this? You're just around a bunch of Christians and it's like, man, how you doing? Oh man, I'm just doing terrible. I'm just a dirty old sinner. I can never do it good enough. Man, I'm not reading my Bible enough. I'm not praying enough. You know, I ought to be a lot more radical. I'm just a terrible wife. I'm just a terrible husband. And everybody looks at that person and is like, wow, they are so godly. You know, kind of that thing. Guys, can I just say something to you? Christians are not supposed to walk around feeling guilty all the time. They're supposed to walk around feeling forgiven all the time. <laughs> you see, that is the difference between the view of a moralist and the view of a Christian, all right? So that's, that's number two. Now watch this. Now here's another one. Think about in the story who the moralist and who the Pharisee and who the tax collector compared themselves to. So the Pharisee looks around and says, God, I thank you, I'm not like all these other people. The tax collector looks up to heaven and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now watch this. For a moralist, a moralist compares himself to other people. A Christian is a person who compares himself to Jesus. Uh, have you ever noticed that in our world, what people are always doing is they're walking around drawing lines that divide the world up into good guys and bad guys? Everybody does this, it's just everybody draws different lines. When I was really young, I kind of had this thing, oh, there's good people and bad people, and the good people go to church and the bad people don't. I got a little older into school, I was like, man, there's good people and bad people, and I could tell the difference between the good kids and the bad kids by who cussed and who didn't. Got a little older, got into the youth group, that kind of thing, and it was like our unspoken motto, you know, don't drink, smoke, cuss, chew, or hang out with those who do, you know. Those are the bad people, and we're the good people. Now we get a little older and we do the same thing. We keep drawing lines that divide the world up into good guys and bad guys. If you're a politically oriented person, you go, man. If you're a Republican, you go, oh man, the Democrats are the bad people, the Republicans are the good people. If you're a Democrat, you go, oh man, the Republicans are the bad people, the, the Democrats are the good people. You may do it by sexuality, man. There's gay people and straight people, bad people and good people. Uh, here's what that line sounds like. When people are, are talking about the line that they draw in the world, that divides the world into good guys and bad guys, here's what it sounds like. It's when somebody says, well, I know I've got my issues, but I would never. And wherever you draw that line, whatever finishes that sentence, that's where you're drawing your line. Listen, this is so hardwired into the human soul. In prison with first-rate murderers, they draw the line that divides the world in between good guys and bad guys. In prison. A first degree convicted, a guy convicted of first degree murder will say, man, I know I killed somebody, but at least I didn't harm a child. They're drawing that line. Now, now here's the difference between a Christian and a moralist. A Christian is a person who understands that the perfection of Jesus is the line and everyone on this side of Jesus is in the same category of sinner. You see, the religion divides the world up into good guys and bad guys. The gospel divides the world into bad guys and Jesus. That's the difference, okay? So let me give you another one. Let's keep going. Here's the next one. A moralist, watch what happens when pain comes into the life of a moralist and pain comes into the life of a Christian, okay? For a moralist, when pain and suffering come into my life, 
when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself because I believe that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. You see, a moralist believes that there is a direct line between pain and performance. If my performance is good, I will have no pain in life. If my performance is bad, then I'll get pain in my life. But watch this, a Christian is very different. A Christian says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I do struggle. But I know that while God may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. Um, can, can I give you an example right here? Have you ever heard somebody say before, man, they shake their fist at the world and go, man, I don't understand why bad things happen to good people. Well, here's how this works. A moralist thinks that they are a good person who deserves good things. So when things in their life go bad, they say, man, I don't understand. How could bad things happen to good people? But watch this. A Christian is a person that self-identifies as bad and in need of grace. So when things go good, when anything good comes into the life of a Christian, a Christian flips the question around and goes, man, I can't believe that good things happen to bad people like me. Thankfulness just erupts out of their heart. Can I give you a very uh, personal example of this? Um, I've mentioned before that when Jan and I first got married, uh, for the first five or six years of our marriage, we had a very early miscarriage, and then right after that, um, we wrestled with five or six years of, like I said, they, they call it unexplained infertility. And the longer that that, uh, that infertility kept sort of wreaking havoc in our marriage, there was a question that started to creep into our minds. And here was the question. The question was, who sinned? Who sinned? Was it you or was it me? Um, I'm gonna be really straight with you. The question we started asking in our hearts, even though we didn't say it out loud, was, is God punishing us because of mistakes you made before we got married? Or is God punishing us because of mistakes I made before we got married. See, pain and performance, we thought those two were directly connected, but watch this. One day, um, I was reading my Bible, and do you guys remember that story of the disciples, and they walked past a guy on the road that was born blind or lame? And remember, they asked Jesus that question. They say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And you remember what Jesus said? He said, neither, neither. This happened so that the glory of God might be revealed. And in that moment, I understood that, man, there's not always a direct connection between pain and performance. We live in a fallen world, and right now, it's not a judge who's sitting up there and directly connecting pain and performance. It's a father who's overseeing everything in my life to make sure that it does good to me, his child, and he will bring me through, and he will sustain me in the midst of it. So that's the difference between a moralist and a Christian when pain comes into their life. Now, let, let me do one last one, okay? Now, now check this out. Did you notice that there's a difference in the story between where the Pharisee is standing and where the tax collector is standing? The tax collector stands far off. The Pharisee walks right up into the middle of the temple and addresses God. See, the Pharisee connected, watch this, his position with his performance. Because I'm good, I'm in with God. Now watch this, here's what a moralist does. A moralist is always alternating between arrogance and self-loathing. So if you're a moralistic person, when you feel like you're obeying enough, you're very proud and arrogant and you look down on people who aren't obeying like you. 
But then when you inevitably have a head-on collision with your own depravity and you do something very bad that crosses your line, you're full of self-loathing. Not a Christian. For a Christian, here's what happens. A Christian maintains humble confidence. They're humble because they're aware of their sin and they're confident because they're aware of God's approval. You see, here's what happens in the life of a moralist. For a moralist, God's level of love for me is dependent upon my level of obedience to him. Pop quiz. Okay, pop quiz. For every Christian in the room, here's my quiz to you right now. On a scale of one to 10, how does God feel about you right now? Get a number in your head. On a scale of one to 10, how does God feel about you right now? Guys, the answer is, it's always a 10. Why? Because God's level of love for you is not dependent upon your obedience to him, it's dependent upon Jesus' obedience to him in your stead. Are Christians saved by good works? Yes, just not ours. See, God does not love us as much as we are like Christ. He loves us as much as we are in Christ. And that's always 100%. Uh, let me give you an example of what this looks like. So um, every night um, before bed, I, I tuck my two girls uh, in, into bed. My oldest daughter, Eliana, is eight. And a lot of times before bed, we have this little ritual. And what I'll say to Eliana is I'll say, um, Eliana, why does daddy love you? And she'll get her little you know, eyelashes going. She'll say, is it because I'm so pretty? And I always say the same thing. I say, Eliana, you are pretty, but that's not why daddy loves you. And she'll say, oh, is it because I'm so smart? I'll say, well, babe, you are very smart, but that's not why daddy loves you. And then she'll say, is it because I'm so good? You see, she's very humble. <laughs> is it because I'm so good? I'll say, babe, you are good, but that's not why daddy loves you. And then I always finish the same way. I love you because you're my daughter. I don't love you because you're smart, because you're pretty, or because you're good. I don't love you because of what you do. I love you because of who you are. And listen, if you're a Christian, you are a child of the living God. He doesn't love you because of what you do. He loves you because of who you are. And what you have to understand is that if you're a Christian, you can sin your way out of a lot of things. You can sin your way out of a good marriage. You can sin your way out of your job. You can sin your way out of a good relationship with your children, but you cannot sin your way out of God's love for you in Christ. That cannot happen. Now, here's a big question. If you're hearing all this stuff and you're like, man, I'm seeing which side I'm on in these boxes, and I don't like the side I'm seeing, what is the antidote? So how do we get out of sort of this, this moralistic tendency to depend on our own righteousness for our standing before God. Well, here's, here's what you have to understand. Do you remember in this story what Jesus said? Is he said, for everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted, and whoever exalts themselves will be humbled. Now, now here's my one-sentence sermon. Okay, here's what it is. What Jesus is saying is, listen, it's not the good who are in and the bad who are out. It's not the moral who are in and the immoral who are out. It's the humble who are in and the proud who are out. Anyone anywhere who self-identifies as a person that is so bad that they're in need of the grace of God and they cast themselves on Jesus and depend on everything that he did for them, those are the people that get in with God and nobody else. 
So here's my example of how salvation works. Um, when I got married, uh, Jan and I have been married 13 years ago. When I got married, uh, I had a very fun realization right after we got married that I had just gained access to Jana's income. <laughs> that, that's what I figured out. You see, when Jan and I got married, uh, my, I was a full-time camp counselor. Um, when I asked Jana's dad for her hand in marriage, his first, it was one of the most terrifying moments of my life, his first question to me was, well, what's your income gonna be this year? And I had to answer out loud $12,000. Not a great moment for me, right? And, uh, and so when we got married, uh, what happened was, Janet at that time, she was a full-time school teacher. Now nobody gets you know, fabulously wealthy being a full-time school teacher. But it was exponentially more than I was making as a full-time camp counselor. So here's what happened. On October 8th, 2005, at about 6.45 p.m., I stood on a beach in Gulf Shores, Alabama, and I looked into Janet's face and I said the words, I do. And in that moment, I gained a lot of things. I gained the most beautiful bride in the entire world to me. I gained the love of my life, I gained the mother of my future children, I gained the person that would become my best friend. But I also gained a monthly income. That's what I also gained. You see, what happened from that moment on is her check every month was deposited into our joint account, and now I could make withdrawals on her income whenever I wanted. And here was a great thing. I never even had to set foot in the classroom. She did all the work and I reaped all the benefit. And guys, that is how salvation in Christ works. The minute you say yes to him, the minute you self-identify as a sinner in need of grace, all that is yours, your sin, becomes his, and all that is his, his righteousness, becomes yours. When I stand before God someday and he asks me, why should I let you into heaven? What I will say to him is I'll say, because I loved you so perfectly that I never lived for anything more than you. You should let me in because I was so pure that I never had a single lustful thought in my entire life. You should let me in because I resisted the temptation of the devil in the wilderness and I stood up to him to, him to his face. Because I was so full of love that when people were crucifying me, I prayed to you, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You should let me in because I gave away every penny that I had to the poor. And if you ask me, Josh, when did you do those things? My answer is, I didn't do any of those things, but Christ did them for me and I get the credit for everything that he did. That is how salvation works. And listen, if you can simply self-identify as a person who is not good enough to be your own savior and say, Jesus, I need you, then you will surely be justified before God. Now, what I wanna do is give you a chance to actually make that decision today. And so man, if you guys could do this here at all of our campus on our iCampus, would you just bow your head and close your eyes right now? And some of you are here and you've been hanging around Lake Point for a few weeks and it's like, man, it's time for me to cross a line of faith for the first time or maybe the first time in a long time and give my life to Christ. If that's you, would you just pray this prayer after me right now? Just pray, Father, I confess that I am a sinner and that I have not been good enough to earn my way into heaven. But I believe that Jesus took the penalty for my sins. I receive the free gift of his grace apart from anything that I have done. I receive it completely as a gift. From this day forward, 
as best as I know how, I will live for you first in my life. Thank you for adopting me as a son or a daughter of the living God. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening today. For more biblical teaching and worship, join us for our church online live weekend services on Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. For more information about all the digital ministries of Lake Point, visit lakepoint.church/digital. Lake Point.